Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. Hello, I'm Shara Dibley from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. You're listening to the fourth episode in our mini-series on research partnerships in Southeast Asia. Today I speak with Dr. Fiona Lee from the Department of English about a partnership that she's established with a design archive in Malaysia. Fiona is a lecturer in English here at the University of Sydney. She researches and teaches in the fields of postcolonial studies, 20th and 21st century literature, and cultural studies. Her research explores the history of decolonization and the Cold War in Southeast Asia, with a particular interest in Malaysia and Singapore. Welcome, Fiona. Hi, thanks for having me, Trishara. So I'm curious about how common it is in your particular field to be working in partnership. So I work in the field of English literary studies and the humanities, um, and I think it would be fair to say that it's not very common that we work with other people. Uh, We tend to write individually um, and work mainly with text, so it's mainly the scholar and the written word. Um, So it is quite rare um, that we work in collaborative or team settings. And is it a common practice for you, or is the project that we're going to talk about that you're doing in Malaysia... I mean, is this the first time that you've done this sort of work? It's my first time working um, in a collaborative project, both in the sense of working with a colleague um, in the department, so a fellow academic, um, and then working with an organization that is not academic um, in its affiliation and structure. So let's talk a little bit about the project. What, What exactly have you been working on and who have you been working with? Um, So this is a project that I'm working on with my colleague Beth Yap um, in the Department of English, and we're partnering with Malaysia Design Archive, or MDA. Um, MDA um, is a small community-based archive that's based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And the project is basically an effort for us to understand the archival practices that this organization is engaged in. It began 10 years ago mainly as an online website where its founders, Azrina Marwan, who's a graphic designer, and her co-founder, Jack S.M. Key, who's an internet feminist activist, created this website to document the visual cultural history of Malaysia. So they began just collecting various visual artifacts and, you know, put it on the website, creating timelines and writing Uh, short historical snippets uh, trying to contextualize the materials that they were finding. And the project grew over the course of 10 years, and it was in, I think, 2008 that they established a brick-and-mortar space um, and had a physical archive where, in addition to housing, you know, physical materials that they had collected, they also began to organize different activities around the concept of a design archive. So Beth and I were ourselves in our own respective work interested in engaging with narratives of the past um, and thinking about critical and creative approaches in doing that. And we were interested in the archival practices of MBA, what they understood archive to mean um, and how they were um, you know, using this term that's often associated with you know, official state institutions or academic institutions, but they were very embedded in community Um, doing this basically at the grassroots level out of their own resources. Uh, So the project came out of an interest of wanting to understand and conceptualize really what archiving meant as a practice in this context, um, and for us to see if we could have any points of dialogue in relation to our work. So interesting. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it's even a thing to talk about or to problematize 
something like an archive. And isn't it sort of a standard entity that we would, you know, that everyone sort of has the same idea about what an archive should be? Yeah, and as a scholar that works with text, you know, going to the archives is, you know, not an uncommon thing. And we think of archives as institutions that hold repositories of knowledge about history, uh, particularly histories of the past. And I think this kind of confers a sense of authority that institutions have over what kinds of knowledge is deemed important enough to be recorded, uh, which then raises questions like whose voices are recorded, what counts as legible as a piece of information, what does it mean um, to be documented. And I think the work of MDA um, is very interested in thinking about what we might call the politics of knowledge production. Archives, whether or not they explicitly spell it or not, have a certain set of politics and parameters in terms of what they choose to keep and what they choose to discard. And, you know, the materials that they keep then and choose to discard begin to shape uh, how we might know or understand something. So I think it's with that very highly conscious set of values or assumptions that they begin with thinking about the archive. And I think the fact that they've chosen to focus on visual culture speaks something about the kinds of information that we often see collected. So I was speaking a moment ago about how, um, you know, as a literary scholar, I tend to work primarily with text. And that's often too what we think about when we think about archives, in particular, the state archives which tend to document the written records, right, the written word. And MDA's focus on documenting visual culture is to remember that the image, right, visual materials are a huge part of our everyday lives. So what does it mean when the written word is given precedence over, let's say, um, the image? What might history then look like if we shift our attention to, um, you know, kinds of objects that might not be um, as frequently documented? So this is really interesting. The way you're describing the project, uh, it sounds as if that MDA and the way that they are doing their work is both the entity that you're studying, but they are also your research partner. Could you explain a little about the values that made you decide to do your research in this way? I think one of the things that often happens in the context of academia is that, you know, researchers are seen as the ones who are producing knowledge. And we study, we do our research, and then, you know, we write up our findings, and then we disseminate those findings to the world. And we're often studying something, right? So there's often kind of a, a defined object of analysis, if you will. And I think what interested Beth and I in MDA was that, you know, they were also engaging in a certain kind of research uh, practice, right? They were also collecting materials, contextualizing it, situating it within a frame, and sort of laying the groundwork for understanding historical narratives. Um, but they were also not doing it in an academic setting. And I think that also tells us a little bit about where knowledge gets produced, right? It's not just in the university. It happens outside the university as well. So I think our partnership began by recognizing that point about the politics of knowledge production, first of all, um, that while universities might have this official social mandate to be the producers of knowledge in society, that you know, knowledge production also happens outside of these formal spaces. Um, and what might it mean to recognize knowledge that's produced outside of these spaces and to think about that then as how might we learn from one another, um, how might we support each other in the work of thinking about what an archive is. And so what did you get from working with MDA in this more collaborative way that may not have been possible had you simply interviewed them or engaged in participant observation or those sorts of methodologies? 
I think what made that partnership work also was that MDA had just been doing the work that they'd been doing for 10 years, following opportunities that came up and developing in a very organic way. And when Beth and I approached them with that project, I think it was also an opportunity for them to pause and reflect and also make sense of their own journey, right? particularly um, the journey that they'd gone from being just a, an online space to also having now um, you know, a physical space. And I think it then became an opportunity for them, you know, given our interest in what they were doing, for them to also think about what have we been doing in our archival practices? Um, how might we then take a step back and conceptualize and theorize through the practices that they've been engaging in in the past 10 years to articulate a conceptual framework or perhaps just some uh, conceptual knowledge, if you will, that they might then be able to articulate and then you know, have a more concrete or strong sense of what they're doing moving forward. Um, so the way in which we did that was we did kind of have conversations and interviews with our partners about, you know, the history of the organization and what they were doing. But I think the other major feature of our project was that we ran two workshops inviting participants that we thought might have an interest in the notion of archives that we might not ordinarily associate with. So we um, invited and later um, made a call to artists, activists, community organizers. And the criteria was that our participants had to be interested in engaging with narratives of the past and to be doing them through the visual artifact. So our participants were doing work like this already in their various settings and may or may not be kind of thinking about it through the concept of the archives. So what we did was our MDA partners and Beth and I, we devised a set of workshop activities, discussions, uh, creative writing processes, visual analysis exercises to think about the work of narrative production and reading visuals and thinking about what that might mean to be constituting an archive. And it was through those conversations, I think, that we were be able to test out whether the concept of archive that MDA had been practicing might be useful to a wider community um, and to see if that concept makes sense to the people on the ground and if it was helpful in their work. Um, so that was essentially what we did. And what did you find from these workshops? So that's a really interesting question. Um, I think maybe a short answer to that would be, we still don't know. We're still waiting for the results to play out. But I think in the immediate horizon of having completed the workshops, I think we found that people were really curious and excited about this idea of the archive. We had really great conversations and, you know, had an opportunity to learn about the different work that people were doing on the ground with regards to producing narratives through the, uh, by using visual artifacts as an entry point. Um, and I think the thing about our project is that what we've done in the immediate horizon is that we've partnered with MDA to uh, help them articulate a conceptual framework for what they've been doing and to also kind of translate that into a series of activities to help people understand the concept behind what they're doing. So it's not just about understanding you know, their organization, but understanding the importance of archival practices, the importance of documentation, and why you know, other individuals and communities might want to think about that in their own context. And then you know, now that we've done that, you know, it'll be some time before we see if anything comes of it, um, you know, with the participants that have attended our workshop. 
Is it too early for you to comment on what you, as a scholar who works primarily with text, have got out of working in this collaborative process that is different to what you've got out of other types of projects? I think what I've learned as a scholar through this partnership is to understand the work of theorizing anew. I think many of us, you know, as academics, we're called upon to articulate what theories we're using, right? What are the conceptual frameworks that we bring to our research? And this often feels like a very intellectual kind of text-based exercise, right? We're reading other scholars, we're citing other scholars in terms of articulating our theoretical framework. And what this partnership taught me was that people were, were doing, right? People started with practice. Um, sometimes this practice came out of responding to an immediate project or an environment. Sometimes it was through play and creativity, just wanting to try something out. And also through making things, right? In the case of MDA, building a website and sometimes responding to certain events to mount exhibitions or create projects or certain events. And it was in the process of doing and making that, again, right, that moment of reflection that uh, we go, okay, we, the activities that we did, um, the things that we were making and doing were guided by a set of concepts, a set of principles. And, you know, it was not that you have your theory and then you sort of apply your theory, right? But it was kind of theory organically coming out through thinking, doing, talking, figuring out what worked, what didn't, what could be changed for the next time. And then to think that, you know, actually that is theorizing, right? It's not just kind of sitting at your desk or at your computer and, you know, reading a bunch of stuff and synthesizing it in your head. It's also getting out there um, in the field, so to speak, doing, making mistakes, reflecting, looking back, um, and then moving forward. So having worked in this way, would, would you do it again? And if so, you know, are there any things you'd do differently? Um, short answer would be yes. Um, and I think looking back, it would also be thinking about or recognizing how much effort and labor it took and, you know, to account for that. I think this was something that, you know, we knew was going to demand this much, but it was not until we got through it that we realized how much effort that it took. Um, but I think also the challenge is also sometimes the kinds of demands that academic institutions can sometimes make on scholars in terms of expecting research productivity to look a certain way, wanting certain kinds of research outputs or publications. And that's the marker of, uh, you know, your research has produced something and, you know, you've done well through your research. And, you know, what we've discovered in some ways is that sometimes research takes time. And, you know, as much as we like to plan and as important planning is, Sometimes things happen in ways that are unplanned, see COVID-19 pandemic, um, and sometimes things force us to revise, you know, what we know and rethink certain frameworks. And those kind of unanticipated outcomes, those sort of having to just keep going and waiting to see what happens before we articulate or, you know, distill something to say that, aha, you know, this is a finding that we can produce. Um, and that can be a challenge too, I think, wanting to think about the research process of it and the organic dynamic nature of it and juggling that with sometimes the expectations of institutions of wanting to see very concrete outputs by way of measuring what we've done. It sounds particularly the case given that a lot of what you were saying that came out of the project was from these conversations and interactions and making mistakes and sometimes it's really hard to show something concrete that's come out of that in a sort of quick measurable time frame. So as a scholar who works primarily with text, going into this partnership for the first time, 
you know, what sort of skills were you drawing on and where did you develop those skills to be able to work in this way? That's a really interesting question. I remember that as we were putting together and preparing the workshops, so much of what I brought into that research space was actually through my teaching experience. In my day job, I teach students how to read, how to analyze, how to make sense of words on the page. But increasingly also in my classroom, we're also dealing with the relationship between text and images. And that was exactly the idea that we had by kind of bringing together narrative and the visual artifact. So a lot of what we were doing was kind of practicing close reading, understanding how meanings are produced, what paying close attention to a visual image can generate, uh, the multiple, sometimes ambiguous and contradictory meanings that emerge, and what to do with all those meanings, and to then recognize that, hey, actually that's how historical knowledge is produced, right? Sometimes just engaging with meanings, possibilities, and having to weigh all of them, and then making a certain decision about what you're going to say about you know, these different possible interpretations. And then with my colleague Beth, who works in creative writing, um, it was through creating writing practices, just uh, recognizing sometimes that part of reading an image requires exercising the imagination, thinking about different points of views or perspectives one might have to inhabit to make sense of something or to think about the meaning or the feelings that might be associated with the image. Um, so I think if I might add kind of another thing that came out of the project, for me at least, was thinking about how there is a real, there's a real synergy between research and teaching that can happen here. Um, I think a lot of what we were doing in that workshops was kind of running a kind of classroom, if you will, but also creating a space so that as teachers or facilitators of the workshop, we were bringing a set of tools and knowledge to share, but also then having to be open to what our participants might bring that might embrace or challenge or modify what we were bringing to the table. Um, and that was also what was exciting about the work. I think sometimes we forget how uh, much we learn and how much we bring to our research practice from our teaching. So it's really interesting to hear that your experience in the classroom has paid off in the way that you've worked with your partners. So I was hoping you might be able to describe for us one of your favorite artifacts that are posted in this archive. So one of the visual images that we used by way to talk about, you know, the different possible narratives that might emerge through reading a visual is an ad by Fraser and Neve, which is a food and beverage company. And this was published in a magazine uh, in the mid 20th century. So still kind of late colonial era. And this ad was a visual ad for beer. And it featured a drawing of a man in Malay dress. So he's wearing a songkok, which culturally marks him as a Muslim. And he's kind of you know, raising a bottle of beer, right? And then I forget the specific slogan, but it's essentially saying, you know, like, buy our beer, drink this brand of beer. And so we analyzed this image, right, that was kind of appeared in publications and tried to make sense of it. What interpretations do you get, especially in a context like Malaysia? You, we do not associate, right, Muslims with drinkers of alcohol. So how do we make sense of that image? And so, you know, multiple possibilities come up. Was it just back in the day that, you know, we don't think of Muslims as being so conservative now and that, you know, they drank alcohol and, you know, therefore were the target market of this ad. So that was one possible reading. The idea being social norms have changed. 
The other was Fraser and Eve Western Company didn't know what they were doing and issued that ad. And it was kind of colonial Western ignorance, if you will. So that was another reading. Um, we were then also thinking about how do we make sense of our own interpretations, right? Are we influenced by our own assumptions or ideas or statements we want to make about the past that then shape our uh, interpretations of that image? Um, you know, how do we then verify the readings that we produce? So these are the kinds of questions that, that we think and talk about uh, when it comes to analyzing visuals. Oh, well, thank you so much, Fiona. It's such a fascinating project, and I really like hearing about how someone whose work is usually solitary, you know, like how much energy it's brought you to be working in collaboration. So thank you for sharing it with us, and we look forward to reading some of the publications that come out of the project. Thanks for the opportunity. Just a reminder, if you're interested in learning more about any of these projects, visit our archives where we have episodes that go into further details. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.